Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series called Gift Exchange. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. When I graduated from high school in Wisconsin, my dad helped me find a, uh, something that I could actually be excited about in going on to my next level of education, and that was golf. Uh, so I went down from Wisconsin to Mississippi State to pursue a, a professional golf management degree. Only nine schools in the nation had it at that point in time, and it took me about 12 hours away from my family, my parents, which was very appealing, unfortunately, to me at the time. Have you guys ever heard of this uh, phenomenon? It's, it's, I'm going to date myself here, but have you ever heard of this thing called calling cards before? They don't really exist anymore, but when I went off to school, my parents sent me, my grandparents sent me off with a pocket full of calling cards. And they said in a card, I want you to check in with us from time to time and let us know how things are going as you're in Mississippi, still your family's back home here in Wisconsin. And so I did. I called them, I checked in from time to time. And almost every time I talked to my dad, he would ask me, how are things going? What can I do for you? Do you need anything? And for several weeks it happened, I just told him I was down at Mississippi and I wanted, I had the opportunity to play as much free golf as I wanted to play. But the problem was I had no transportation to get from campus to about eight, 10 miles away where the golf course was. And my dad took that upon himself as this was going to be uh, something that he was gonna change the first time that I came home from school. It was Christmas, the year was 2001. I came home, flew home, my brother-in-law actually picked me up from the airport in Chicago, drove me back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I pulled into the driveway and I saw sitting right before me, it was 2001, a 1981 Pontiac Phoenix. It's two-tone red, my dad talked to his parents, my grandparents, they were getting old and up in years and they couldn't drive as well as they could before. They had two cars. That Pontiac Phoenix was older than I was and it had 25,000 miles on it. <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa used it to go on vacations and that was it. Dad says, here, you can take this down when you go to school. The real Christmas miracle was that that car made it down to Starkville, Mississippi. <laughs> and it didn't clonk out on me. There was a couple, couple moments I was, uh, I was really worried, not only getting down, but also coming back, 750 mile drive, and everything was great. Time to time, I'd call my folks back up on those calling cards, played a lot more golf after that, it was a lot more convenient. To my surprise, the very next Christmas, I experienced another exchange. My dad knew that that car was on its last lifeline, it was a dangerous for me to even have that so far away from home, and so, so he went back to my grandparents whose health was continuing to fail, and, and they had two cars, and they could no longer drive, so my dad took their good car, and he passed me his 1995 Ford Taurus station wagon instead. One of the greatest exchanges I've ever experienced in my life. A 1981 Pontiac Phoenix, one of the first front-wheel drive cars that was ever manufactured, 
to a grocery getter with blue interior cloth. The worst thing about that 1995 Ford Taurus was that it came with one condition. It wasn't a free gift. My dad said, in order for you to have this car, I want you to do one thing. I want you to take your grandfather back to Madison after Christmas, and then it's yours. I said, okay. At the time, my, my grandfather, um, his health was so, so deteriorating, still lived at the house, but he was on a catheter 24-7. We get in the car, it's 90 miles from Milwaukee to Madison. About 45 miles into it, I begin to smell something. It turned out that when he got in the car and he slammed the door, he pierced the catheter bag. And for the next 90 miles, it would slowly leak on the interior of my 1995 Ford Taurus station wagon. Have any of you guys been in Mississippi in the middle of the summer <laughs> and experienced how hot and sweltering it can be in a car? Do you know what the smell of urine does to that? <laughs> Christmas time this year, we're doing a sermon series called The Great Exchange, The Gift Exchange. Just about all of our families exchange gifts at Christmas time. What we said last week was that Christmas is, it's really the time of giving because we celebrate the best gift that could ever be given to us. God the Father sent us, he gave to us Jesus, his son, to die for our sins on the cross. But in many ways, even though this was a, an exchange, it's something that, or a gift that we receive, it's also, in some kind of way, an exchange. Sinners exchange our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. We exchange our sin for his salvation. Last week, we talked about exchanging our hurts for God's healing. This week, I want to talk about exchanging our ashes for his beauty. Ancient Greek philosophers used to talk about something called the transcendentals. There were three things that they identified that brought meaning to everything that existed, everything that had a being in an existence that was worthy of significance, had in some way manufactured or entailed these transcendental qualities. They're elements that transcend the here and now. They go beyond the temporary to that which is eternal and eternally significant. Transcendental, transcendentals are, exal, are the realities that exist beyond us. They're the things that we can feel at times, but we don't even realize that they're there. And they suggest that the world has genuine meaning because of three things. The three transcendentals are truth, goodness, and beauty. When we think about truth, we think about that which is real. Goodness is a quality that fulfills its purpose. If it is uh, something that can be identified as good, it is fulfilling the good purpose for which God has created it. And beauty, measured by any standard, is that which we would look upon as lovely. An aesthetic beauty, but also even deeper than aesthetics. These three properties, they transcend that which is natural, fleeting, or even temporary. And the Bible doesn't use the same category as transcendental, but it does talk about these things. It talks about truth. The Bible will tell us that all truth is God's truth. The perfect 
truth was embodied in a person who is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible also talks about the goodness of God, that when all is said and done, even when it looks like he might be a a malicious or malevolent God, he is actually good in the way that he deals with people, sinners, those who he redeems, and even this world in which he has created. And the things that ultimately point to God are beautiful. There's a quality about them that goes beyond the subjective to the objective beauty, a reality that's beautiful. What does Isaiah mean in this passage in chapter 61 where he talks about exchanging our ashes for his beauty? Look down at your text, Isaiah 61. I'm going to read the first three verses just like we did last week. Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, and here's the the three exchanges that I want to talk about here this week to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Before we look at the details of this passage, I want you to notice somewhat of the overall structure of how Isaiah has put this together in this prophecy. Passage begins by saying the Messiah has been anointed by the Spirit of God, and here's your your big independent clause. There's the big job description of Jesus. To bring good news to the poor. End of statement, period, full stop. The gospel is Jesus, God's Messiah. The Father sent the Messiah, his son Jesus, to the earth to bring good news to the poor, good news to the world, to those who desperately need it. And bring, in the ESV, This verb is a a very interesting action. I want to highlight this verb just for a second. Here, it does not say that Jesus just preached the good news, although the passage will go on to say that. It's what we read in the Gospels, for instance, the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't just say that the Messiah points to the good news. It says that he brings the good news. And that verb in Hebrew is written to indicate a, a plurality of action, or a frequency of action. It means that everything Jesus said and everything he did was some aspect of the good news being brought through him and entailed in him. The verb bring bring is extremely important in Isaiah. It only occurs about uh, four times in the entire book. Bringing good news to the poor is found in Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and bring good news. The praises of the Lord. Bring here is directly related to the gospel, the content of the good news of salvation through the Messiah. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. 
Some translations will say something different, but the ESV goes on to say, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. What's interesting about these passages is that it's the Messiah who both brings the announcement of good news, he also puts it in writing like an author, and he puts it out to press as a publisher. One commentator puts it this way, I think this is good. Because he, Christ, has done what no one else could do. He is not only the preacher of the good news, he is the good news. Jesus does one main thing. He brings the good news. It's not just that he announces or preaches the gospel. It's that he is the gospel, which means that the good news is a relationship with a person. The Messiah who's depicted here in Isaiah 61 and fulfilled in Jesus as we go on to read our Bibles is not only the one who proclaims freedom and speaks of salvation, he is also the one who ensures that it'll come to be. That if we believe and we align ourselves with the good news, we are aligning ourselves in a, in a right relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. He not only speaks it, he is the good news. He brings good news to the poor. What does that mean? The rest of the passage goes on to flesh it out. I want you to skip down to verse three. Prophecy goes on to say that he will grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And I want to draw your attention to the first of those three phrases. Beauty instead of ashes, your translations might say. Let's talk about beauty for a second. What is it? How does the Bible describe beauty? Psalm 16, verse 16, you'll see that when you go through the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, there's a beauty that's ascribed to nature to God's creation. Psalm 16, verse six. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, the inheritance that he's speaking of there is the inheritance, the land of Israel that God the Father has given to the Israelites. Jeremiah 3, verse 19 goes on to talk more about this. Oh, what a joy it would be for me to treat you like a son. What a joy it would be for me to give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful piece of property there is in all the world. That refers to the land of Israel, the inheritance, the boundary lines that God has allotted to, given, and ordained for his people Israel. The land of Israel, its borders, its mountains, and its valleys all the way from Mount Hermon in the north, the highest peak, to the Dead Sea in the south, the lowest point on the face of the earth was a very beautiful land. And particularly in the Old Testament, beauty is highlighted through a city, through the city of Zion or Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 50, verse 2. It calls, this is a reference to Jerusalem that is known as Zion here in this passage. The perfection of beauty the place where God shines forth is the city of Jerusalem. In Israel, the land was beautiful, but specifically God's beauty resided in one city, God's city, the city of the king, the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes, albeit very infrequently, 
the Bible talks about people as beautiful in form and appearance. Three men specifically, David, Absalom, and Daniel, are all described as handsome in appearance in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 25, verse 3, describes Abigail as a woman who is both wise and beautiful. Genesis 12, 11, talks about Abram, Sarai's, or the wife of Abram, Sarai, as a woman beautiful in appearance. No single person matches the beauty from a, speaking of a woman, as the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon. We, we see beauty described in places, in cities, and in people in the Bible. But the concept of beauty, the biblical concept of beauty goes so much deeper than just that. The consistent refrain throughout scripture is that God is the beautiful one. That there is no beauty that can be depicted or looked upon like the beauty that is caught up in part of God's nature, character, and his being. Nevertheless, the biblical concept of beauty centers, focuses, and always draws our attention to God. And there's, and there's a few things that we can say about his beauty. First, beauty is not always subjective. In the Bible, beauty is objective. It's real, and it's true, especially when it pertains to God. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. First Chronicles 16, 29. Ascribe to the Lord beauty, the writer commands us, that is due to his name. And if that's, if that's all we knew about beauty, that God creates beauty in nature, that places in cities, Jerusalem, are beautiful, and that people can all ultimately see God as the beautiful one, we would conclude that beauty is an aesthetic appeal, something that's in the eye of the beholder that draws our delight. And we should see, find beauty in what God has created. We should find beauty in the person and the work of God. Many of us do that. One of, the, one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been on the face of the earth before is the Sea of Galilee. Have any, any of you guys been to Israel before? There's a time we spent three nights overlooking the Sea of Galilee in Israel, and it was, it was breathtaking. And at one point in time, we took this little boat trip, and we go all the way across from one shore to the other on the Sea of Galilee, and, and the, our, our tour guide that was leading us, he kind of held his hands out in a direction like this. And he said, I want you to look to the northern shore of Galilee over there, and he pointed to it. And he said, 90% of Jesus' ministry took place from that point right there to that point right there. And we looked upon the other shore, and we saw not only the beauty, the physical beauty of it, but also the weight of that beauty, to think that we were in a place that Jesus was, the disciples were, and all the stories that we, we read about. After three nights on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the beauty began to, to fade. The cities that we saw on the opposite coast were more familiar. 
It's kind of like living in Denver. You know, if you're not from Colorado and you see the mountain peaks, you just say, wow, this is majestic. This view takes my breath away. And after a while, if it's a view that you see every day, they're just mountains. You get used to it. In Israel there, the beauty began to fade. The scenery became all too familiar. There's a, uh, there's a verse in Proverbs 31 about the woman of excellence. It says something like this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What the proverb is saying there is that beauty is fleeting. It's temporary. It's there one minute and it is gone the next. Beauty is, is something deep that we have to wrap our minds around when we think about beauty for ashes in, in Isaiah 61. But beauty is something that holds true at a form of distance. In order for us to appreciate beauty for, for what it is, Beauty is the true form of distance, meaning that there's something far away from us that we really can't grasp everything that's there in its beauty in order to understand all the details of it. We struggle to know true objective beauty because everything we look upon in this world is temporary in nature. We see beauty in a song, and so we sing the song for three weeks. Eventually, the song becomes familiar the beauty of that song begins to fade. We see beauty in traveling and going to a beautiful place. Eventually, the memory of that place begins to fade. Many of you are gonna gather together at Christmas time, and you're gonna have a beautiful holiday, festive gathering with your families. And even the memory of that is going to fade. It can't be recreated if you tried. There's a reminder here that beauty is not completely in those things. Beauty is shown there at some level, but true beauty is reflected through them, not necessarily inherent in them. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and I think this is so good when thinking about beauty. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, the beautiful thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of the flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, or news from a country we have never yet visited. There's a major problem with the beauty of God. It's not just that he is so glorious and so beautiful that we should worship him. It's that we are so ugly and so utterly sinful that we can't behold his beauty for everything that it is. The ugliness of our sin creates a barrier to God's beauty, a barrier to what scripture would call God's glory. We are beholding the beauty of God, but we are not welcomed to it, at least not at first, and not our own abilities, our own initiative, and even in our own power. I want you to look at, at this passage in Isaiah 61, because it, it talks about Mourning and sadness, over and over again. Look at the end of verse two. It says that the Messiah will comfort all those who mourn. Verse three mentions those mourning in Zion. Again, that's a reference to the city of Jerusalem. And verse three, again, talks about the oil of gladness instead of mourning, sadness, grief. 
Isaiah's ministry and message brought extreme sadness and grief to Israel, to all the people of Israel. He told the people that they would be forced from their homes. They would be exiles in a country that is not their own. That the Babylonians would ride in and they would destroy their beautiful city, their beautiful land, their beautiful inheritance. Everything about Isaiah's ministry brought grief and sadness to the people of Israel when they realized that just a hundred years from the time that he spoke, Nebuchadnezzar would ride into Jerusalem in 586 BC, he would destroy the temple, he would raise the city to the ground, and everything that would be left would be ashes and destruction. And a few Israelites to pick up the pieces. Isaiah 39 verses six and seven says this, look, a time is coming when everything in your palace and the things that your ancestors have accumulated to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own descendants, whom you, Father, will be taken away and will be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And yet, Isaiah 61 says, that the Messiah will comfort those who are mourning. Verse three says this, he will give them beauty instead of ashes, or a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And ashes were very symbolic of mourning in the ancient Near East. To sit in or to sprinkle your head with ashes was a mark of of grief and insignificance. Ashes were a sign of deadness unworthiness. There really could not be a stronger dichotomy between these two phrases. Dust and ashes and death on the one hand and the beauty of God, a beautiful headdress on the other. The Hebrew word for ashes sounds almost exactly like the word for the beautiful headdress. The writer here and the, the prophet is drawing together these two things to show that when you compare them, the gulf between beauty and ashes is gargantuan. There is no way that we can experience the beauty of God apart from the ashes of our sin and our ugliness. How is it possible that Israel, ugly in their sin, facing the consequences of their sin that God told them would happen if they were unfaithful to the covenant, could still experience and see the beauty of God? What would give them a place of priority? That God would say, you are worthy to look upon my beauty. That you are worthy to adorn yourself with true beauty as a gift completely for me based on nothing that you do. For us to see God's beauty, he had to take our ashes. For us to see the beauty of God, he had to take the ashes of our sin upon himself. When the Father sent Jesus to the earth, he wasn't just giving us a gift. He was taking sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 talks about the son emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of dust and ashes, obedient to the point of death, obedient to the point where he gave everything for us. 
In other words, in order for our ashes to be exchanged for his beauty, the beautiful one took on the ugliness of our sin. He became sin for us, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He was marred, he was beaten, he became gruesome to look at. But in the act of doing so is reflected the beauty of God. Christmas is a time of great joy, but it starts with a time of great sorrow. Christmas is a time of great joy, but it also starts with a time of great sorrow. Our sin was so deep, and we were so helplessly lost without God, that it couldn't be dealt with simply by speaking the gospel. Jesus became the gospel. He didn't just tell us how to get salvation, he became the means of salvation. God had to deal with our sin by exchanging something. It was God's son for our sin. It was the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Only when we realize how short we fall of the glory and the beauty of God can we turn our mourning into joy and gladness. Only when we face the deep reality of our sin that we fall short of every aspect of God's glory and every aspect of his beauty can we see the depth of what God has done for us and the gift of salvation and what it cost him. God can take our mourning and give us his beauty because he became ashes so that we might adorn the beauty of God and be caught up in his glorious nature. I want to encourage you to come back. We're going to take one more phrase from Isaiah 61 on Christmas Eve and talk about the great exchange, this divine gift exchange that we have because of Christ and because of what God has done for us. All right, let me pray, and then I want to introduce to you guys some new members here at TBC. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much again for, for the great gift and what you're willing to do for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We thank you that you looked upon just the, the ugly nature of who we are apart from you, and you saw something that could be beautiful. We thank you that you took upon our sin upon yourself and gave us the gift of salvation. Lord, we will never fully understand the depths and the miracle of the incarnation but we are ever so grateful. And we pray that the rest of our lives would be caught up in a, in a joy, an unceasing joy, because if we have nothing else, we have everything in you in having salvation. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn to Philippians 2, and uh, we're going to close. I'm going to use this passage as somewhat of a, a benediction this morning. Philippians chapter two. Really excited, we get to announce several others who are becoming members at TBC this morning. And just so you guys know, those who I'm announcing, we've got a gift for you up on the table as you guys walk out. There's a TBC little tumbler filled with some goodies. Make sure if you're becoming a member today, grab one of those cups. So Ethan and Henry, you guys let those things stay there. Okay, these are for new members only. Appreciate you. Uh, our new members go through a six-week class at TBC. Uh, this is something that Tom Woody typically does for us, extremely grateful for his ministry. 
And during that time of taking that class, you get to learn just a little bit about uh, some of who we are, history of our church, uh, some of the things, the places that we've, we've been to throughout uh, the time that we've been in Tulsa since the late 1950s. TBC has a history and a legacy. I feel a great responsibility, the elders feel a great responsibility to pass on that legacy to the next generation, to keep sharing the gospel, to be missional in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and keep adding to God's church. This church is called Tulsa Bible Church, but it is not our church. This is God's church. When we take up the mantle of, of church membership, we take up the responsibility that it entails a commitment to love one another, to do things for one another as Christ has done for us as a reflection of that, things that we do for the Braswells and the Kethas of the world and so many others who have been touched by this loving body. Um, some of the members I'm excited to introduce for you, if I would call your name, why don't you guys stand up where you are just so we can recognize you guys. Hold your applause until the very end and we'll do this in rapid fire. Jeremy and Katie Rice are joining Tulsa Bible Church this morning. They've got three girls. There you guys are, right? In the, we got one girl off at Children's Church probably this morning. These are our neighbors right here in Tulsa. Extremely grateful to have them joining our crew. Brian Kendall, are you up in the balcony this morning? Saw Brian. Brian's here actually with his daughter this morning. Brian's from coming over from Colorado. You're familiar to the mountain peaks in Denver, I'm sure. A little, little bit, not as much small town maybe outside of Denver in the Rocky Mountains. Brian's joining us this morning. Extremely grateful to have him. He's been partaking too in our uh, prison ministry and, and many other things that we're doing as far as teaching ministry. Uh, even the men's ministry classes has been really great to get to know him a little bit as he's come along as well. Tim and Stacy Condi are coming to TBC. They have two girls that they're bringing with them as well. Uh, Tim and Stacy, long time um, in Tulsa, missionary families, great story. Every time anybody joins the church at TBC, you'll have the opportunity to write out your testimony. The elders get to read those. You're gonna hear some more of them on videos as we do this. Tim and Stacy have really great testimonies and enjoyed reading that, and welcome to TBC. Super grateful that you guys are joining us as well. And finally, Carter. Uh, Carter is one of our high schoolers that's taken a, a step of membership. There he is, sitting next to Kyle, right there. Um, Carter is, uh, Carter's been, found us actually during the pandemic. I was going to church across the street. They closed their doors, ours were open. Then Carter came across and said, hey, you guys having church? I say, yeah, come on in. Uh, adopted him into the family pretty quick. He's been here ever since, so thank you guys for, for being here. What I'd like to do is for you guys all to stand, and I'm just gonna read Philippians 2. You don't have to read along with me, but I just want you to follow along. This has become somewhat of a mantra of a, a theme passage of Scripture for us as we think about life in the body of Christ and exemplifying and, and living in a way that would please Christ, even in our church membership. After the service is over this morning, this is going to be our, our benediction that I'm going to leave you with as we go. Uh, as soon as I'm done praying, we'll be done up at the front here. If you'd like to meet with an elder or a pastor, we'll have a couple guys under the screen here if you'd like to pray or just to introduce yourself to us. We'd love to get a chance to meet you and invite you to do so. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but out of humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. You guys have a, a great rest of your Sunday. Hopefully see you back here on Christmas Eve.